so bored You need to walk the other way I tell you once more Please get out of my way I don't want you no more We're done here, boy Welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Whitney Beatty, CEO of Apothecary, luxury storage cases for cannabis. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you so much for having me. Before entering the cannabis industry, Whitney was a successful entertainment industry executive. After launching Apothecary, she was selected for the first cohort of Canopy San Diego Cannabis Business Accelerator. She won the ArcView Group's 2017 Los Angeles Pitch Prize and was selected at the Fall 2017 Pipeline LA. Whitney is an advocate for women and women of color in the cannabis space and has spoken extensively on her experience bootstrapping to NVP female fundraisers in the cannabis space and cannabis social equity. She's been featured on On Second Thought with Trevor Noah, a panelist at South by Southwest and featured in Entrepreneur, Forbes, Inc., New York Times, LA Times, Vice, Dope, and The Hollywood Reporter, amongst others. Wow, Whitney, that is an impressive list of accomplishments. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been quite the ride. (laughs) I can imagine. And you have really have got an amazing story about how you got into the industry and really what you've accomplished as a woman of color in cannabis. Tell us your story. Um, well, you know, my background is, is very different than most because I grew up not using cannabis, uh, you know, specifically. Um, you know, I was a child of the 80s and um, Nancy Reagan told me to say no to drugs and I believed her. Um, but uh, my life changed when I had an incident as I was working in the entertainment industry and really um, uh, had uh, a, a situation happen at my desk where I was my heart started to palpitate. I couldn't breathe. Um, I was lightheaded. I felt like I was having a heart attack and I was going to die. And because I felt like the work was so important, I didn't want to, to alert anybody um, uh, to my condition. So I got in my car. I drove to the UCLA Medical Center. I parked my car uh, where the ambulances were and left it there with the keys in it because I figured if I'm going to die, who cares if someone steals my car? Um and I walked in and told them I was having a heart attack. And they said, you're not having a heart attack. You are having an anxiety attack. Um, and that changed my life because trying to figure out how to deal with that anxiety um, uh, led me to a lot of pharmaceuticals that I did not like. My doctor said in an offhand comment, uh, why don't you try cannabis? And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, you're trying to put me on the drug drugs. Um, but what it did was it uh, made me do my research. Um, not only about the plant and what it could do for me, but also why I had negative feelings and connotations towards that plant. Um, you know, all the way from Harry Anslinger up into the drug war um, and its effects on my community. Um, and as I started using cannabis to deal with my um, anxiety, I realized that there was a lot of opportunity in the cannabis space. And I knew that personally, um, I wanted somewhere that I could keep my cannabis in a safe 
um, you know, uh, a place. I was keeping my wine in a wine fridge, liquor in a bar, cigars in a humidor, and my high quality cannabis in a shoebox under my bed. And that didn't make sense to me. Um, and so I looked around and I couldn't find what I was looking for. And so I decided to create it. Um, and then I did what any entrepreneur uh, does. You know, I quit my job, sold my house and started a company. Amazing. So tell us a little bit about Apothecary and where you are today and what your plans for the future are. Uh, so Apothecary has been around since 2015. We went into full sales in 2017 um, and we've been clipping along. Um, uh, we've been able to expand our offerings from one to 15. Uh, we've been able to um, land ourselves some uh, major retailers and some major partners, which has been fantastic. Um, and well, we continue to, to do that work as the way that people consume change. Um, it's our job to be able to pivot and change with that market. Um, to be able to follow consumer trends and to be able to really relate to that data. We still, you know, even though I'm not plant touching in the apothecary business, um, you know, we still have to deal with all the issues that are, you know, coming against this uh, industry in regards to banking and advertising and everything else. Um, and so it's uh, critical for us to be able to be nimble, uh, to be very guerrilla style, um, as we go about trying to grow, uh, you know, our business uh, for the next generation of cannabis consumers. Excellent. Now, you, in addition to building an incredible luxury brand in the cannabis space, you're also a vocal advocate for women of color in cannabis. And that's really what I wanted to talk to you about today. The impact that kind of coming into the cannabis space and A, as a woman, and B, as a woman of color, realizing that this industry has a major opportunity to build it right, to build an equitable and just industry from the beginning. What, how has that impacted your leadership? What has, have those things weighed on you as you've built this company uh, to make sure that your company is also diverse and supporting people in your community? I mean, absolutely. Um, I think that um, as an industry on the overall, we have an uh, obligation um, uh, to to look at this holistically, um, you know, in a very real way. There would not have been a prohibition of cannabis to begin with um, if not for abject racism. Full stop. If you look back in the history of, you know, Harry Anslinger and how cannabis came to be pro uh, prohibited, Harry Anslinger was a prolific racist. Um, he said things like, you know, reefer makes uh, darkies think they're as good as white men. You don't get more racist than that. So in legalization and the proliferation of this plant, there's an obligation, um, you know, to the cannabis community, I believe, to be able to repair that damage done. Um, you know, uh, it also goes to the drug war where, you know, communities of color were disproportionately disenfranchised by that war. Um, and the effects of it, you know, remain all over our communities today. We're talking about um, people getting, you know, white people and black people use cannabis at about the same rates. But black people are four times to 11 times more likely to go to jail for it. When we go to jail, we're likely to get longer sentences. Our communities, you know, have uh, people who have been taken out of that community and unable to uh, re-enter in um, in a good way. They can't get loans. They can't get student loans. They can't get jobs. 
Um, it has a lasting effect. They can't get housing um, on those communities. So yes, I believe that you know you can't have an opportunity where um, you know uh, Chad can open a dispensary on every corner and Jerome remains in jail. That's not okay. Um, and so we have to address that as a community. Um, you know, and, and know that we're building an industry on the backs of all these people who paid an ultimate price. Um, so for me, what does that mean? Um, it means that I believe that I have to advocate. I have to advocate for people of color in this space. I have to advocate for women of color in this space. I have to advocate for black women in this space. We're underrepresented. Uh, we've got about 4.3% of the businesses in the cannabis space right now. That's way under where our um, you know, our population should be. Um, and what is causing these issues? We need to really be able to dig into that. Um, you know, uh, one of the biggest issues uh, that we're seeing is financing. In the cannabis space, you can't go out and get a bank loan. The SBA is not going to give you a loan to open a cannabis business. So you're stuck using, um, you know, investors. You've got either VCs or you've got angel investors. So 2% of VC money is going to white women-led businesses. 0.0006% is going to black female-led businesses. There are less than 40 black female-led businesses that have ever raised over a million dollars. And that goes across all industries. It's absolutely absurd, especially when you look at the numbers that say black women are prolific business owners. We are entrepreneurs, and we generally uh, start businesses um, at an epic rate. And yet and still, we're not seeing that money come back to us. And why is that? Why aren't VCs um, investing in uh, Black female-led businesses? Because the numbers are telling us, well, the data is telling us that businesses that are diverse have better, um, uh, better ROI. So there's a disconnect there. Okay, so you also consult with companies, cannabis companies, who are looking to become more diverse. Can you give us some key things that companies can do to improve their diversity, that investors can do to improve their diversity, so that we lead to a more just and equitable cannabis industry that actually represents people in the right way, the right numbers of people? There are a lot of women, there are a lot of people of color in the industry, and yet most of the funding and most of the hiring goes to white men. So, How do we change that? So when we're looking at a business, um, you know, I, I talk to them on, on a couple different levels. Um, and the first is easy, hire women, hire women of color, because without having a seat at the table, we're not being able to uh, affect change throughout an organization, you know, point blank, period. So you can't, you know, uh, even if you have women of color in the lower ranks of your business, if you're making decisions around that board member table and you don't have any black women, brown women at that table, how are you going to affect that real change? And not just in a position that is, you know, diversity inclusion, because that becomes the, the pat answer um, for companies. Oh, we'll bring in someone who's going to do a diversity inclusion. We need someone who's you know, uh, women of color have uh, amazing skill sets. I refuse to believe that that is the only skill that they have to offer your company. Um, so hire women of color, listen to women of color. Um, and, and because at the end of the day, uh, women of color are a huge part of this market. 
um, that should be addressed. You'll be able to have all sorts of different perspectives, different market opportunities by bringing these people in. Lots of companies now want to be able to address uh, systemic racism um, and uh, do so through corporate giving. Um, and I encourage those companies to make sure that they are giving to company, um, to organizations or nonprofits that are actually out there on the ground doing the work. Um, and what does that mean? Uh, there have been tons of black and brown ran nonprofits who have been doing the work to get people into the cannabis space, to educate people, um, to uh, afford opportunities for years. So those are the type of organizations that you should be looking to give. We've seen a, a lot of uh, companies want to pop up with their own programs, but they don't talk to the communities of color to even find out if those programs are useful. Um, is that really what the community needs? Uh, without actually talking to the constituency, you don't know if you're providing any value or not. Um, it's key that you make sure that people of color have a seat at that table as you're making those decisions. When we're talking to investors, um, I talk to them about diversifying their, um, their positioning. Um, there are uh, tons of black and brown owned businesses that have fantastic ideas. This is not charity work. These are people who have great ideas who don't have access to the resources to bring them to fruition. Um, you need to start looking outside of your small circle um, in order to bring those people um, to light. At the end of the day, one of the issues that is, is a big problem within my community is that um, black generational wealth is low. Um, they say that um, the average white family has $100,000 um, uh, in wealth and the average black family has 5000 So when you're talking about friends and family rounds and when you're talking about bringing in how, you know, people bring in money to start a business, uh, black people who have, a, you know, a network of their friends and family generally don't have access to the money that, um, that a white male entrepreneur would. Um, and so that really, for uh, a good investor, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to be able to come into a community and find great ideas and be able to build new businesses. To take that a little deeper, uh, you and I have had some really compelling conversations around race in the last few years. And I have really learned a lot from you that has enabled me to be a better ally to women of color. And when we talk about these things that companies can do, I feel like if we don't really understand kind of the layer underneath this, the layer that gets missed by women like me, white women who say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll hire more. We'll, we'll bring awareness to these discrepancies in wealth, but there's, there are things that are going on underneath the surface that we're not aware of that we need to be. And there are things like, performative allyship and the history of race in the feminist movement, that if we don't understand what you face as a woman of color in business, we're not really going to be able to truly build a bridge and make a difference for you, stand up for our dear friends who are being subjected to this kind of uh, treatment and experience that is barriers to entry. So can you tell us about performative allyship, the history of race in the feminist movement, and things like this that we need to know to raise our awareness and be better allies? 
So the sure, absolutely. So the idea of performative allyship is really, um, you know, people who uh, post something on Facebook, oh, Black Lives Matter, um, but really aren't doing any of the work behind it. Um, and we're finding we're seeing that a lot in companies right now too. They're quick to post. You know, I believe Black Lives Matter, we're supporting or whatever, but is there any teeth to that? Are you actually doing anything in your life to be an ally? Because it's not enough just to be racist. We want to see people be anti-racist um, when <laughs> there is so much coming at us as people of color right now. Um, and it becomes really frustrating when you see people put up pat, you know, responses. It almost has become a marketing ploy right now. Everyone says Black Lives Matter, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to follow you around the store and make sure that you're not going to steal or that they're not going to tell their aunt that what they're saying is racist or tell their friend that what they just said was inappropriate. Um, so it's just for the show. Um, and I think that that becomes one of the issues um, uh, that we're seeing. I mean, within the feminist movement, there's been a lot of talk um, about how Black women in general have been left out of that space. Um, I mean, during the first wave of feminism, you know, you've got people who like Susan B. Anthony and um, what's her name? Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They were heroes of the movement. Um, they got, you know, uh, suffrage for uh, women, but we never talk about the black people, the black women who stood right beside them, the Sojourner Truths and the Ida B. Wells of the world who were right there with them. Um, and yet, did not get that right to vote until 1965 because of disenfranchisement. So the feminist movement today is really big when they talk about the numbers in regards to salary of women to men. And you hear this number all the time that, you know, women uh, average 80% of a man's salary, um, which is true for white women. But for black women, we're getting 68%. Latinas are getting 54%. Uh, Native Americans are getting 58%. We don't hear those numbers because there's a disconnect there. Um, you know, white women have, um, have been the most prolific um, uh, benefactors of things like affirmative action. Um, the numbers, if you uh, look at them historically, um, for affirmative action, um, they're the ones who were successful under that program. Um, they still hold the majority of major, uh, managerial jobs compared to African-Americans. Um, the numbers of, you know, female doctors has shot up. Um, you know, there has been an amazing amount of um, female um, governors, 41, I believe, uh, white female governors, two Latinas, one South Asian or whatever, no black females. Um, and yet, um, white women, uh, I think the number is 70% of them, still don't support affirmative action. Wow. So it becomes one of those things where, you know, black women feel like, you know, within that movement, we're not being seen. We're not being heard. We march alongside, but our issues are pushed to the back. Um, and we don't get the allyship that we're putting in. Tell me 
more about that because you had mentioned in a conversation we had that there's also a position you're being put in to perform for people who want to be your ally, right? So you end up being the only black woman at the table who has to explain everything. Tell me more about this. Share with us what that is for you and how we cannot put you in that position or other women of color in that position while also acting as allies for you. So this is really frustrating for uh, women of color. Um, uh, you know, I can only speak for myself, obviously. Uh, we're not a monolith, but I definitely have talked to other women um, who, uh, who have this concern. Um, and it's uh, because I might have a seat at the table or um, I'm that black friend that um, that a, a white person has. And, you know, to be sure, I think they did a survey where they said that, um, you know, the average white American has about one black friend. Uh, if we're what? looking at, um, you know, a hundred, uh, the average white American has 91 white friends, one black friend, one Latino friend, one Asian friend, one mixed race friend, and one other friend, um, and three friends of unknown race. So when you think about that, <laughs> um, I mean, just the connection is is low in general. And what ends up happening is, um, you know, I say, hey, you know, this happened to me and, you know, that it was racist. And then I get 900 comments um, or, you know, uh, questions that are telling me that you don't believe what I'm saying or I need to uh, be able to recite this time and time again. Um, if I was molested, if I was raped, you don't go to somebody and say, can you walk me through how he touched you? Can you walk me through um, you know, how, this, you know, how you were violated? But when it comes to conversations on racism, people want you to be able to highlight in detail every racist thing that ever happened to you. Um, and, you know, and it's basically my trauma for your drama, um, you know, bring out, uh, you know, your painful experiences and then I'll decide if I want to believe you. And at the end of the day, what that does is it makes me feel like I'm not being seen. Um, you know, and that becomes the issue. If you can't see me, you can't recognize my humanity. Um, it's the same thing that happens when people are like, I don't see color. You know, this isn't an issue because I don't see color. If you don't see color, then you don't see me. I live in an intersection of being black, of being female, and these things affect my life on an everyday basis. The fact that you say that you don't see color is really just saying that you don't, uh, you don't acknowledge the things that I'm going through. It's, it's an erasure of me and my experiences across the board. Um, and I think part of this comes from this idea that black women are super strong and we're, you know, we're leading the charge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, it, you see it across, um, you know, uh, across a spread, um, black women, even as children, there have been studies about the adultification of black girls. And they're saying that, you know, black girls are seen as less innocent and more adult-like than white girls of the same age, especially between the ages of five or 14. We're grown up way too fast. We can't just be girls or whatever. And then in adulthood, 
you know, it's this idea of the black superwoman. And I can't be everyone's superwoman. I shouldn't have to be everyone's superwoman. Black women don't have to come in and save the world. Um, you know, that becomes the hard part of it. Um, is that there's this expectation um, that uh, that is just not realistic. And I mean, it goes across all uh, all spaces. If you're looking, even in, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot are um, issues within the medical community. Um, they said that a recent survey told uh, people that um, about 55% of the, uh, 50% of the doctor surveys that believed at least one myth about psychological of physiological differences between black people and white people. I like, you know, black people's nerve endings are less sensitive and makes them less susceptible to pain. 50% of doctors believe this. Like today, this is a survey that um, was done recently. I mean, there is a perception that we're just supposed to take it all. Um, and we're supposed to not acknowledge the trauma that all of this caused. Um, and it's something that I feel even ongoing on Facebook, you know, um, you can go on Facebook and people are, you know, constantly arguing back and forth or whatever. But if I put up, you know, I drag out the traumas that I actually have gone through and the pain that I've actually gone through, then people are like, I don't believe you. You're, uh, you know, uh, you're just not seeing it right. Um, or that's your perception. You're just seeing that because you feel, uh, you know, some sort of way about it, or your, your mind is set up for racism or whatever. It's a, a erasure and a refusal to see who we really are. And that really becomes a, a problem between relationships uh, between um, black women and white women. Um, and what we would like to see more of is us not having to have those conversations. I shouldn't have to drag out my trauma in order for you to believe what I'm telling you. And furthermore, I shouldn't be having to have these conversations. I would love to see more of white women policing more white women, saying that this is not okay. You can't say that. You know, that is racist and you need to check yourself. There's a lot of people begging to be educated or whatever. Go read a book. Read a book. <laughs> what book do you want women to read? Don't ask for what, what books do you want women to read? Um, I mean, you can go through all, all sorts of things. You know, the New Jim Crow, anything by um, by Coates. Um, you can go all the way back to you know uh, books by Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou. Uh, learn about the Black experience. Learn about how consistent racism has been in our lives. Learn about uh, the prison industrial complex. Uh, learn about, you know, issues like the, you know, everything from the three-fourths compromise to, you know, why Juneteenth is important to the Black Wall Street. I mean, we have to bring these things up constantly. Um, and it becomes really difficult to be the person who is both aggrieved and to do the job of the person who is a master educator of uh, other people. It just, you know, I shouldn't have to drag up emotional trauma in order to convince somebody of my real lived experiences. One of the things that you brought to my awareness a couple of years ago when there was a big um, upset with a woman in the community uh, and her racism towards a young black woman was that, you know, we, we kind of tend to look at things only happening 
today. And our history is something that happened a long time ago that we're disconnected from. And I've been aware of racism my whole life, but I wasn't aware of the the nuance of the racism that existed between white women and black women and how that has actually carried itself forward in a very subtle way. But it, it, it speaks to everything that you're talking about right now. And so if we as white women don't recognize that this exists, then we're starting from a place where, well, you have to explain to me your trauma because I don't understand how it has been created in an environment that you have had no choice but to exist in because we've never addressed our history of it. And so I want to read to you an excerpt from a Washington Post article by Kim McLaren. It's called, Can Black Women and White Women Be True Friends? She says, in the scene from Roots, I most remember, Missy Ann informs Kizzy that she is to become her property. Missy Ann, the name itself is black shorthand for a white woman, a forerunner of Becky or now Karen, and Kizzy have grown up together. Missy Ann has even secretly taught Kizzy to read and write. She is delighted at the prospect of becoming the legal owner of her friend. Kizzy is less so. Among other things, she doesn't want to leave her family, but she knows enough not to voice her displeasure. She faints and faints until Missy Ann demands an answer. Kizzy, don't you want to be my slave, the white woman pouts? Aren't you my friend? Generally speaking, it's not that I dislike white women. Generally speaking, it's that I do not trust them. Generally speaking, most black women don't. What are your thoughts on this? And how can we build trust between white and black women when this is in our history? And Roots is not the only movie that highlights this, that even though many of us have seen, we still don't, we don't get it. We don't see what has happened between us as women and how that's been carried forward. <sighs> yeah, um, that's a big question. Um, and I, and I do, you know, it, it, it definitely plays to the history. I mean, this country has, you know, 250 years of, you know, chateau slavery, and then we get to uh, sharecropping, and then um, Jim Crow laws, and then, you know, uh, abject segregation. Um, you know, the civil rights movement just happened in the 60s, which means that, you know, these are things that my mother lived through. Um, or what have you. Uh, so people like to say, you know, slavery was so long ago and racism was so long ago. But I mean, in the 60s, you could, I couldn't drink from a water faucet um, that didn't say black over it in the South. So it's not that long ago. White women have a intersectionality between being white and being female. Um, and we see from the, you know, the conversations on Karen, you know, and the idea of Karenism uh, um, is um, they have the ability to lean into being white. They have the ability mm. to, to lean into to being white and, and making those phone calls and, you know, forcing uh, people of color who make them uncomfortable for any number of reasons to bow to their will or be, you know, reported to the police or put them in danger in that sort of way. Um, so in a lot of ways, I understand where this, uh, writer is coming from because it is true that, um, you know, uh, historically, um, white women have played a large role 
in a lot of the racism that has gone on. I mean, look at, you know, historically stuff like Emmett Till. Emmett Till was murdered because a white woman said that he, you know, uh, did something to her. And he was a, a, a boy and was killed. Um, you know, and so I think that it's important um, if you have black friends, if you believe as a white woman you have black friends and you haven't talked to them about racism, you haven't talked to them about their experiences, you haven't had a real conversation about what, um, you know, uh, what that means to them, then you guys aren't really true friends. I believe that. You know, uh, it, it really takes doing that sort of work um, uh, in order to understand the, the whole of a person um, and the whole of their experience. Um, and I do believe that that is, you know, super Im important, like I was saying before. Um, it, to act like that's not a part of who they are is, is an erasure. Um, it's a refusal to see uh, uh, people. And if you can't see somebody, you can't recognize their humanity. Um, and that becomes super important in, in moments like this. Why, why do you think that part of dealing with race is, I don't see color. Why do you think that we go to that direction of, well, I see you as everybody else, which is ignoring and erasing a part of your life experience and your pain and trauma. Why do we do that? I think people believe that that absolves them. I, I can't be racist because I don't see color. I can't be, you know, uh, biased because I don't see color. But that's not actually how any of this works. Um, you know, uh, by saying that, all you're saying is I refuse to see you. And then for a black person who has been going through these issues, then it makes us feel like we have to, to you know, continue to justify our positioning, continue to justify what we're seeing, continue to justify our lived experiences for, for someone who refuses to, to acknowledge even the most basic parts of ourselves. And so there's always that, you know, going to be that push and pull with somebody who, who says that they don't see color. Um, it becomes super frustrating because it just, it forces us to continue to justify our existence. And it's really done to, to uh, allow them to feel vindicated in their position. So in other words, it's okay to feel uncomfortable and trying to avoid yeah. that discomfort is not doing your friends any favors. It's not enabling you to be a real friend or to be a real advocate for women of color and people of color in cannabis. Or in Absolutely. general. You have to be ready to be uncomfortable. Women of color, people of color are uncomfortable in situations all the time. I constantly walk into the room where I'm the only black person at that table. I constantly walk into rooms where I'm the only female at that table. I, people of color um, are, all, are put into that sort of positioning on an everyday basis. And white women um, don't have that level of discomfort. Um, get ready to get uncomfortable. If you're really going to deal with racism, if you're really going to talk about it, if you're really trying to make changes within yourself, within your business, within your community, you have to be ready to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to be ready to listen to data that you're not going to want to hear. 
um, and you're going to have to be able to advocate for positions that aren't just your own. And that becomes really important as well. I can't just advocate, you know, for as a white woman, I just can't advocate for white women um, as entrepreneurs. I need to be able to advocate for black women um, as well. You know, for every um, uh, woman entrepreneur, um, for every $1 a black woman entrepreneur makes, a Latina makes $2, a Native woman makes $3, an Asian woman makes $8, and a white woman makes $9. If we're, as a white woman, you can't look at that $9 um, amount and not think about that black person who's making, that black woman who's making $1. You have to be broader. And if it makes you uncomfortable, that means you're doing it right. (laughs) You don't change without discomfort. Very true. Whitney, I cannot thank you enough for sharing yourself, sharing your trauma and your experiences and your advice on how white women can be better allies to black women. We are in a community, a very tight-knit community of women in cannabis. And among us, there are many, many groups of different types of women, whether it's categorized by race, by age, by experience. And if we don't face these issues and deal with them honestly and with compassion and love for each other, we will sink our own ship. And so I really, really appreciate your leadership, your willingness to come out and talk honestly about these things and to fearlessly address women like myself and and let us know how we can be better allies for the women that we care about who are women of color in our lives. Um, It's without our unity, we will not make a difference. So thank you for everything you do. And thank you for your, your honesty and your vulnerability. I appreciate um, you having me and having the conversation. Obviously it's a, it's a hard conversation to have, you know, I uh, wonder how people are going to perceive you and perceive the information and you know what a hot button issue this is, but I think that it's it's critical um, that we're able to work together um, to address these things um, uh, as a community and as a whole. Um, And I, you know, there's been a lot of uh, white women who have come forward as fierce um, anti-racist, fierce um, allies for uh, women of color. And we need to see more of that. We really need to see more of that uh, within our community in order to make the changes Uh, that are necessary. I agree. I agree. We are better together. All right, ladies, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you have learned something valuable in this conversation. I hope that it has triggered some discomfort in you because as Whitney said, with that, you're on the right step, you're on the right path and you're, you're ready to make the first step in being a true ally and building the bridge of trust between white women and black women in the cannabis community. Thank you to our guest, Whitney Beatty. She is one of the most accomplished women that I know in the industry, and I'm so grateful that she has shared her time with us today. I look forward to speaking with our next guest and having you ladies back to join us for Women Leading in Cannabis.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.